Hi, everybody. What day is it today? It is, as I pull my phone out here, it is Friday, November 8th, 2019, and this is my, uh, well, this is the Luke Thomas live chat, episode six, I believe. We are finally live. I, as you can see, I am finally effing home. Thank you, Jesus. I was tired of being on the road and having to record those and then upload those, and then you would see that you'd have to... Um, let me filter these out. I just need, uh, let's see. I just want these. Filter. Okay. I was having to find upload places in South America where the internet is not great. Uh, so that sucked. That sucked a lot. But here you are. I appreciate you guys tuning in. A lot of different things to get to today. The Nate Diaz news. I was going to put a video up last night, but I wanted to save it for today's live chat. Um... What's next for Jorge Masvidal, 245, UFC Moscow, and then anything else that's on your mind. Uh, with that preamble out of the way, we should get this started. By the way, uh, this is not like my post-fight shows that I do, uh, my post-fight specials that I do here on this channel after fights where you have to, you don't have to, but I, it's, it's the way I like to encourage it is if you leave a, a, something in the super chat, I will definitely get to it. I will still do that here, but please understand this live chat is designed to not be a part of that. Um, if you make a donation, I will honor it, but I don't want you to feel obligated to do that. And again, that's the same for the post-fight show as well. It's just it's people like, oh, how much money does that raise? Each individual show, not that much, but over the course of a year, it is enough uh, for me to make an inroads into all the investment and equipment I had to make this year. So it actually really benefits me in the end and uh, all the changes I had to make. So, all right, with that out of the way, Let's get this going. First things first, of course, as always, please like the video, give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, hit that effing alarm bell. Um, I've not been driving subscriptions the last month, so they've been growing, but they're kind of way down at the same time. And no, I'm not drinking. It does say Bacardi, but it's just Diet Mountain Dew. I poured it out of the fridge. I promise. I wish I, wish I was drinking, but I've got three hours of radio to do after this, so no, I'm not drinking. Mmm. Okay, so like the video, subscribe, 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 and tell folks about it. I still do not know what the issue is with iTunes. I've submitted the feed twice, or Apple Podcasts, whatever it is anymore. I've submitted the feed twice, but we should be on everything else. Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, everything else. So um, I'll keep working at it. I don't know what the problem is, but I'm trying. I swear to God, I'm trying. Uh, oh, and last but not least, uh, I'm not going to recommend a book in the sense that I have read it. And therefore, it's great, but I have picked up one. I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, this is by Matthew Stoller, or Matt Stoller. Uh, he is writing a book on, this is the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. Um, he has argued, it's, fun, it's funny, I, he's argued that we should break up Disney. And then I follow another guy named Matthew Ball, who's like this sort of streaming video content expert. And he argues vociferously against it, and their debate has been... Kind of interesting on Twitter. In any event, this is basically, it's it sort of echoes some of the stuff I've heard from Tim Wu, who wrote The Master Switch, who believes that we have, as a modern economy, not done enough to break up large companies, and that ultimately that's better for consumers and businesses long term, um, the, you know, the general business atmosphere. But I do not know if it is good. It could be terrible, but I'm about to start it, so we'll see how it goes. But that's what I'm reading. Okay. Neither here nor there. Let's get to the questions that you have asked. I put up a thread yesterday. Appreciate everybody who contributed. 
With that in mind, we shall kick things off. Okay, here we go. First question, Luke, if Masvidal went back to lightweight right now, how do you see his chances against Habib or Tony Ferguson? Well, let's assume he could make the weight. Let's assume he could make the weight. If he could make the weight, how much would it drain him? I think he's sort of really become uh, a very, I mean, he, he was sort of floating between two weight classes. Let me cover this up. He was floating between two weight classes before, and he could do well in both. But you see, like Nate Diaz, he can he can fight at welterweight, but I don't think, you know, he was fi- in fighting Pettis in his return to welterweight. He was fighting another guy like himself, who's not a natural welterweight, but they were just up there because that's the way it goes. Uh, you can see that there was a difference in the firepower of Jorge Masvidal, uh, up a weight class. He, he looked to me like he was just the much harder hitter. And in some ways, a lot of people fit that Diaz faces are harder hitters. But he was also like resilient to Diaz's punches. It just felt like a weight class difference that you could notice. So if he went down, how much would it drain him? But let's assume you got, uh, you know, he could do it without too much being shaved off of his game. How would it? How well would he do against Habib? How well would he do against Tony? The Tony fight would be super interesting. That one to me would be very competitive. The Habib fight, I just don't know. And this is the problem he faces with Kamaru and uh, Colby. Now Colby's an interesting one because they both kind of know each other's game, so maybe each one can pick up on the secrets of the other. That that'll be that'll be a curious, a curious thing. But I talked to the boys at Fightmetric about this, and their basic belief that the stats show is that you know you can, you can't like finish the guy this way. But if you really get after Masvidal with takedown attempts, just relentless, 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 make him wrestle, you know, he'll stuff a bunch of your shots. Even if you're like Demi and Maya and you get to his back, he'll, he'll stop your, um, your choke attempts. He'll, he'll reverse position. He's not going to be so overwhelmed that he doesn't have something to offer. But if you basically just spam him with these kinds of control positions, these kinds of things, it's enough to win rounds. Now, is it exciting? I don't know. Um, maybe he's in a bit of a different spot now. People are like, oh, he's totally different. He's not totally different. He, What he has done is, if you watched Jorge Masvidal for years and years and years, the real lesson to his game was that um, he was good at everything. Like, what was he good at? Boxing, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, had good cardio. The issue was he would not manage a fight sometimes all that well, where it would be the third round, he'd be kind of coasting, and you'd be like, dude, like, it's... It's one round apiece. Clock's ticking. You got to move. You kind of mess that up a little bit. And then sometimes I always kind of thought he was fighting not to his opponent's strengths, but he would almost let the opponent dictate how they were going to fight, and then he would answer for it. Right? He would, um, they want to go to the ground. Okay, we'll go to the ground. We'll just fight there now. And he might try to, like, not might, he would absolutely try to beat your ass there, but rather than sort of setting the tone. If you look at the bout he had with Diaz, he was setting the tone, bro. He was setting the tone. In any event, so that to me against Tony would be interesting because Tony's a little bit hittable. Now, Tony has that volume that goes for him, and in a five-round fight, it's hard to pick against Tony no matter what. But, um, you know, and Tony, by the way, Tony has knockout power and has fought at welterweight himself. So the, the Ferguson one would be interesting, I think. The, the Habib one where a guy's just getting spammed with takedown attempts over and over again, I don't know how much I like Jorge's chances there. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of how I look at it. That's, that's the way I would, I would perceive it today. So, you know, speaking of like Kamaru and Colby, the Colby one's interesting to me because it's a grudge match and they both know each other really well. I wonder how that, pull this over. I wonder how that affects their game. 
In the case of Kamaru, I think Kamaru would just be all over him. And I don't know that it would be the most exciting fight, and I'm not saying Masvidal can't win, but if past his prologue, that kind of thing where they're just all over you, that, that appears to be... I mean, it's a problem for most people, and I don't think Jorge is immune to that kind of a thing. You know, he can hang with you there. And a lot of times he's just been hanging with guys when he, rather than setting the tone. The difference to me is not that he added a bunch of new tricks. It's that he had a switch in mindset where, you know, he, yes, he has sharpened up some tools, but the real big switch for him was he's going to set the tone. It's going to be on his terms. He's going to fight in a way where he's not responding to what you're doing. He's going to go and set out uh, upon the world his kind of fight. Um, second here, what are the odds that Usman versus Covington turns into a kickboxing match, and what does it look like? If it turns into a kickboxing match, um, it will look like that's a fight that favors Colby. Uh, Usman can strike on the feet. I just don't think it's something that he is going to benefit from long term over the course of a fight. Right? So we've gone over this before. What are the key differences between Usman and Covington? There are many, but to me, the real big difference, and the numbers make this abundantly clear. Usman does the majority of his damage through ground and pound, and Colby does the majority of his damage through striking on the feet. So when Colby is wrestling, he's just wrestling, and he's switching side to side, and he's threatening the back, and he's kind of putting a hook in, and maybe threatening a choke, and then controlling a wrist, and then breaking your posture down. But he's just real wrestling on you the whole time. And then on the feet, he's just constant like Chinese water torture. Bop, 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 right? The steady stream of things. And that's how he was able to overwhelm Robbie. Robbie was ducking and dodging. He just couldn't get going. He couldn't get out of first gear. Um, so he ended up there. He doesn't have the power that Usman does, and you've seen Usman hurt people on the feet. Uh, Sergio Moraes is, is a great example of that. But in general, where he really excels is in control positions and then hammering. I mean, getting after it, right? That's really where he's great at. So so that's what I would say was the key difference. Now, that if you're asking what are the odds that it's a kickboxing match, I don't think they're small. Because what if Covington decides to stuff all of Usman's shots and keep it on the feet, and he's just peppering him and peppering him and peppering him and peppering him, that might work. That actually might be a realistic scenario. I don't think it's realistic for Usman to win that way, but that is actually quite realistic for Colby to win that way. Um, now, I do think they're going to wrestle. I don't think it's going to be one of those things where it's like two jiu-jitsu specialists who don't want to take each other down. I don't really see it that way. I do think there's going to be heavy wrestling in this contest, and I do tend to think that it's going to... Uh, a lot of it will be decided by the wrestling. But if you're asking, could there be very long stretches of the fight? Is it possible that there are long stretches of the fight where they are exchanging on the feet? And what would that look like? It would look like, you know, both guys want to press the other guy. To me, it might look like Colby just constantly throwing out shots, not none of them very heavy. And you see Usman looking for the big uppercut. He likes that. The big overhand right. He likes that. Pressuring Colby in. That kind of a thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's not an insignificant chance is what I would say. But do I think it'll be decided that way? Only if Colby has his way. Only if Colby has his way. Which, by the way, I know a lot of y'all are Colby haters. You better start taking his chances in that fight very seriously. You better. All right. With John Jones tweeting that he wants Dominic Reyes in his next defense, how do you feel of the fight going and which, if any, are Reyes' advantages versus John? 
Um, saw Dominic over the weekend, as you guys saw. Um, buddy, he is huge. He's uh, as tall as me, if not a little bit taller. He's a big dude. Um, strong, got a grip on him. What difference... Uh, okay. What, if any, are Reyes's advantages versus John? Not a ton of tape on Dominic. Uh, he's getting different fight over fight. Like the point I made about the in the Darren Till video, and I... I did it also as well on my uh, post-fight show. Um, you know, where these guys are 25, 26, and, and then people like me, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody else, being like, oh, this is kind of who they are. It's like not who they are, and Dominic is still on that point. Well, actually, he might be 30. How old is Dominic Reyes? Before I start here, I'm just making up ages. I could have sworn he told me he was 28, but am I right about that? Dominic Reyes is 29. 29 uh, and he turns 30 in December so yeah he's about 30 well okay so you know what I'm not sure that's so true I mean yeah you know what it's still a little bit true he's still really forming out pieces of his game he's got good forward motion uh, he's got good backwards motion which is to say he can strike offensively on the on moving forward he can strike offensively moving backward uh, he's got great takedown defense you know what advantages does he have over John not a lot known about his game adaptability over time uh, you know when I say not a lot known I mean relatively speaking um, you know, I have to study the tape a little bit more because he doesn't have a reach advantage for sure. And he doesn't have a wrestling advantage for sure. I think he might have a speed advantage. I think that might be it. Um, but I need to see more from his defensive boxing if he decides to pressure. Um, the answer is, I don't know that there's a, a, a lot of guys at, at light heavyweight that have like obvious structural advantages over John. John is incredibly good at neutralizing people's like, and that's what he's done in the last two fights. Did he really like put it on Anthony Smith or put it on Tiago Santos in parts? Sure. But really what he did was take away what they were good at. He didn't let them get going, which is the sign of somebody who's, you know, maybe you could say managing risk. And I think that'd be a fair characterization, but also dude, to be able to do that to people, you have to be very, very good. So the question is rather like, does John have any kind of weakness such that he wouldn't be able to solve for or you know crucially minimize Dominic's strengths? I again, I have to study the tape a little bit more. Nothing stands out to me about that, um, except speed. I do think he'd have a speed advantage on him. That 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 would be real. Uh, but he would have to. Whoever you're going to be, you got to get inside that distance. And I don't. And, you, and then you have to like. John's so good at like fighting at his range, and then when guys are like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get inside the distance," then John just clinches, and then from the clinch, he's, you know, so good at like landing shots and getting you the takedown, like a knee tap. You got to fight him in that mid boxing range, and I think in that mid boxing range, Dominic could win, but you got to force that range. That's very, very difficult to do, man. Very difficult to do. Uh, <clears throat> next, when you had that meetup at the bar in NYC last weekend, how many donks did you see? Try to get with Valentina Shevchenko and get shot down mercilessly. Um, well, here was the funny part. So I was behind. We had this like these ropes, and then behind that was this big desk, and it was me and Dan Hardy, and then there were seats for like three or four more people. It was a huge desk, and then behind us were these row of couches, and the fighters just like kind of chilled behind us. So like Valentina was back there, and Antonina, Dominic Reyes, Jake Shields, Israel Adesanya, a bunch of people. Um, out in front, there was all these lights and on me. And then there was the crowd. And we'll do, you know, ask, I'm not making this up. Ask anybody who was there. When I say standing room only, I mean standing room only. We had that bitch packed to the rafters. We needed a bigger venue, quite candidly. Um, in any event, 
So once they went past the lights and it was just a sea of humanity, I couldn't see anything. My guess is it was probably overwhelming for them because online they just love a woman who can fight and dance the donks out here, don't they? They just love that. So I didn't see a whole lot, but I'm guessing there was a bunch of that. I'm guessing there was a bunch of that. Uh, love the special edition of Morning Combat you did with Aljamain Sterling. Yes, indeed. Do you plan on doing any more shows like that? If so, are there any fighters in particular that you would like to join you? Uh, there are no immediate plans that I'm aware of to do more of that. And frankly, Aljamain's a special case because he brought the thunder. He had great analysis. He's good on camera. He was candid. Most fighters are not like that. Most fighters are very guarded about their opinion. And I'm not talking about like setting up a fight with somebody. I mean just in general, their willingness to opine about things. It's not They're not nearly as open as you might think. They, there's certain topics they don't want to get to. You know, obviously they're going to be homers for their teammates. It's just hard to find somebody who can do that. Sterling does that. Now, of course, he's going to he's going to ride for his teammates. Of course, but you, know, you can only get so much out of a fighter in terms of candor. But you know, that's about that, that's pretty close to a best case scenario. I thought he did a great job, and we'd have Aljamain back for sure. But in general, man, like the point of morning combat is that uh, you know I would love to have fighters come through who are willing to absolutely do what we do on there, which is. We give you real opinions when sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong, uh, but we try to be as informed as possible. We try to be as fair as possible, but we are we are honest. If fighters are good on camera and they are they are absolutely willing to be honest, yo, we'll give you airtime. We will give you airtime. But if you come on there and you start, you know, equivocating and uh, and not, I'm not talking about equivocating over a complex situation, but equivocating in a way where you're being intentionally mealy mouthed. To avoid offending people, you can get the fuck out. Like we, that's not what we're about. It's not what we're about at all. So uh, it would really depend. It would really depend. I mean, we want to do lots of things. I want to take morning combat. You know, we'll see if it ever happens. But I want to take it on the road, right? There's a lot of things I want to do. But uh, but uh, you know, one step at a time. You can help me out, diggity donks, by subscribing to morning combat. That's what you can do. Because the more of those we get, the better our videos do. The more things we can do. Uh, I answered the next one already on here. People talking about, like, you know, I'm not giving people credit by name. Yes, I do. Uh, hi, Luke. I know you said you don't read many MMA books. No, I do not. I personally don't find the autobiographies all too interesting either, but you mentioned on the MMA Beat some time ago a series of books, one of which is about the history of Gi versus No Gi BJJ in Brazil. Fuck, I forget which one that was. Could you let us know what those books were again, and is there any reading material you like that you recommend? Um... What was the book by... I think I have it here on my self, uh, shelf. So you should read A Fighter's... Uh, I think it's called A Fighter's Heart. Um, by Sam Sheridan. Anyway, in that book, he discusses the origin of jiu-jitsu. Gordon Ryan has made a point about... you know, People are like, oh my god, I don't like your trash talk. It's really bad for BJJ. Blah, 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 and uh, you shouldn't do that kind of a thing, and it's really terrible. And his point has always been, like, if you look back at the history of jiu-jitsu, this idea that it was all always about respect and people bowing and shit is not true. It was about a bunch of rich, entitled guys uh, who would go around dojo-storming in Brazil, terrorizing their rivals, fighting on the beaches, especially against the Luta Livre guys and you know, Hugo Duarte and all those people. And uh, this idea that it was about honor and respect is just nonsense. He is right. 
he is right about that. The 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 origin of jiu-jitsu is absolutely exactly what he says it is in Brazil. Now, my argument counter to that, and I've made it to him personally, which is, you know, look, if you look at the even the state of Muay Thai today, a lot of times it's you're getting children to fight because they come from poor, you know, rice farming families, and obviously this is a terrible thing for them. You look at what it is in the United States, and we have we have, you know, um, this isn't quite the right word, deracinated it, but we have pulled it from its origins and turned it into something of a modern martial art for adults about respect and honor and competition and you know improving yourself. That's got nothing to do with the actual story, not really the history of Muay Thai, but its current existence in Muay Thai. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing to do, right? It may not be, you know, it may not be that it's accurate to say BJJ is about honor and respect. It doesn't make it a bad thing, though. Right, it actually kind of makes it a bit of a good thing, I would argue. Nevertheless, he is right about that. He is absolutely right about that. And uh, this book, Sam Sheridan's book, details that. It details the history, not 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 exhaustively, but in a very very good way. It details the history of jujitsu uh, inside Brazil and uh, the kinds of things that were happening. So, and how it was, you know, all for rich kids and how they were pricks. It was uh, these guys called the Juju Bray Boys. Look it up, man. It was, uh, it was, it was. It's not the history that you think it is. Uh, Rico Verhoeven versus Batterhari rematch. I've given it no thought. I apologize. I have so much. I have so, only so much time in the day. But I guess I'm looking forward to it. I don't know. Hasn't Batterhari been in and out of jail recently? I, I can't keep track. Uh, what would be your dream UFC card? You can use past fighters as well. You need a standard five fights for the card. And he has, he has very nice things to say, which I really appreciate. Um, I don't know that I think of the world in those terms. Like, are there major fights I would want to see? And I guess that's what he's asking, if you could put them all on one card. I don't think about things like that. I just think about big fights I'd want to see. Um, so, look, the most important one is Habib versus Tony. I think all of us would agree that, like, crossing that finish line, whoever the best made the best man win. But just crossing that finish line is kind of important for the sport uh, and, and for all of our just our hardcore fan interest. And, you know, like for lightweight generally, man. I don't think there's ever been I, – I have to delve more into it, but I don't think there's quite ever been like a rivalry like the one you see between those two and a fight that like – you know, this, this is interesting. They've tried to make this fight, what, four or five times now, and every time they fail and then try again, the reason why they keep trying is not merely because the fight would be interesting, but because the f- the sport is forcing it. It's now forcing it a fourth or fifth time. Every time that we try to do it again, it's because these two guys are leaving us no choice. They just keep winning. And so they keep forcing this intersection that uh, every time these guys are, you know, uh, the stakes get raised and then they force the intersection, something happens, and then they force, and then they force, and it just keeps going and going and going and going. And, and this is the situation that we're in. That is extremely unusual, both in the number of times they've tried to make it and it failed, and then, you know, among a variety of other considerations. So, yeah, that's a big one. Beyond that, um, I don't know, Derek Lewis, Greg Hardy would be a fun one right now. I don't think of it so much in those terms. I'm a little bit – I, I don't um, – a lot of people like to daydream about possible matches – I like to do that for like big ones, like the one I just mentioned, here or there. But I don't really, I'm not really good at like uh, daydreaming about the possibility of those kinds of things. Or, you know, you see this column in MMA Junkie, like Sean Shelby shoes, what should be next? That's not really a strength of mine. I don't quite have the same passion or imagination for it. 
But if you're asking me, the only thing that I really do sort of consistently think about about fights that we don't have that we need, that is up there with the top of them, for sure. You got to be honest, as an MMA fan, you know, you get most of the, this is going to sound kind of crazy maybe to some people, but, or maybe not, you're going to get most of the fights that you want. You're not going to get all of them, but you're going to get a lot of them. It's one of the benefits of the UFC. They have aligned their business and the way they do it and the amount of content they produce with the consumer's interest. Uh, relative to boxing, you're going to get a lot of, um, you're going to get a lot of your interest met. Do you think home field advantage actually matters in MMA? In this case, I'm talking about Zabit and Cater moving from Boston to Russia. Well, we're going to find out. The answer is it varies dramatically fighter to fighter. Some fighters love fighting at home, and they feel buoyed by it, and they love hearing the home crowd, and it drives them to greatness, and they shine under the lights. Think about Connor fighting in Dublin, right? I mean, he, he was a man among his people there. So that was huge. In other cases, you've got guys like Jorge Masvidal who kind of like going on the road. Sometimes they even like being booed. It kind of really makes them feel, um, you know, in its own kind of way at home. Some guys like Frank Mir liked competing in Vegas because he was sleeping in his own bed. Some guys hate that because they don't want the distraction of home. It just will vary fighter to fighter. Now there are jet lag issues that can be that can be consequential. Sometimes securing the right kind of food during fight week can be consequential. Do you have adequate access to things to help you cut weight uh, when you travel to a foreign country, for example, and and then finding those things that can be a bit of a challenge, where the home field advantage can really aid the person from there. But like you know, Zabit's not from Russia. Oh, sorry, he's not from Moscow. You know, so he speaks the language. Okay, that's a pretty big advantage. But it's not like he's a Moscow resident where he is, you know, um, hanging out among his people. I mean, how many – I suspect if people are traveling to see Zabit, there might be a number of Muslims there. But among Mos- – what portion of Moscow religious demographics? What portion of Moscow is Muslim? The predominant religion is Christianity, with the Russian Orthodox Church being the most popular. Uh, They account for 14% of the city's population, so not insignificant, but frankly, very much the minority. Very much the minority. So, that kind of a thing. That kind of a thing, right? Luke, are MMA fans bloodthirsty savages? (laughs) That's a weird question. Uh, I don't watch as much boxing as MMA, but I've seen fights stopped by a doctor, fighter, trainer, or ref during and after the round, and the winner is cheered by fans while the commentary team praises them for their TKO victory. At UFC 244, after Masvidal put on a masterful performance, he was showered with booze after his TKO victory. Why do you think these stoppages are viewed so negatively in MMA? Do you think uh, when boxing first became commissioned, TKOs from corners or doctors reviewed negatively as well. Will it change with time? Thank you and have a nice day. Why did we go from 15 rounds in championship fights in boxing to 12? Do we know why? Do you know when that happened? It's because a dude was killed. Right? Uh, was it Duck Koo? What's the guy's name? I always get it wrong. Duck Koo Kim? Uh... Yeah, Duck Kim, or Kim Duck depending how you want to arrange the first and last name. Uh, he was killed. 
he was killed uh, by Ray Boom Boom Mancini in a fight. It wasn't Boom Boom's fault. It was just the nature of the it was just the nature of the competition. It was after his death, which I think aired on national television, they dialed back the number of rounds from 15 to 12. Um, here is the news for MMA fans. I said this on Morning Combat. I'll repeat this now. It is going to take, and this, by the way, by itself may not do it, but it is going to take uh, deaths. It is going to take deaths. Uh, I don't think that MMA, you know, what was his name? Matt Riddle, who left MMA for pro wrestling. He made a point that when he does pro wrestling shows, he feels like he's going to, like, you know, the people who come are looking to see almost like a play. Whereas when he fought MMA, he felt like people were going there because they were like, they felt like gladiators and the people there didn't care about their well-being. They just wanted to see him, you know, get stabbed with swords kind of a thing. Uh, that's probably a perspective you should take seriously. But I wonder how much of that is a function of the fact that, you know, UFC's got a good safety record, right? I mean, yes, there's no safe way to fight. Everyone who does this is going to leave uh, pretty fucked up in the end. However, in terms of mitigating deaths or, um, you know, uh, paralysis, they've got a really, they've got a flawless record for that, as a matter of fact. So, uh, so I think fans have been attuned to the idea that whatever the limits are, of the human body, we're not pushing them enough, especially when the fighters themselves are protesting. You know, you have these fighters being like, oh, um, I would never want my corner to throw the towel. Well, you're asking to get killed, man. You know, I don't know what to tell you. You are asking to get killed. Uh, that's just the way that this this is going to... Here's the this is going to go. Uh, it probably won't happen in the UFC first, and obviously we've had some deaths on some regional shows, but I mean like a regional show of consequence or a Bellator or a one. We already had the, the weight-cutting death in one, but it may, it maybe it'll take for the UFC to happen. The long story short is... Let me close this window that just opened up here. The long story short is someone's going to have to get killed or very, 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 very badly hurt, and it's going to have to be somebody kind of famous. It's going to have to be a big bout, and... People always ask me, like, aren't you worried about PEDs? We can have a conversation about that. But the reality is the first death, I suspect, will most likely happen not by virtue of the rules, which have been, you know, we're already living in a scenario where we've, we've got a decent system in place to mitigate uh, the problems, unlike having a 15-round boxing fight. But uh, it'll be like a late stoppage or somebody had a bad cut plus a weight stoppage, like some kind of commission either lacks oversight or improper oversight or something along those lines. A corner didn't want to throw a towel kind of thing. And someone's going to die. Uh, it, might, it might take several deaths, by the way. I don't think it's just necessarily one. And then I think it will begin to dawn on these guys about the frailty of the human body, about the need to have longevity. Uh, but, you know, it's not just MMA fans. MMA fans might be bloodthirsty in a way that, is different than some other fans, but like, have you guys been following this unbelievably stupid debate in the NBA about load management? Here's how it goes. I'll make it super fast. The long story short is you got this guy, Kawhi Leonard. He led the Toronto Raptors to a the NBA championship last year. He's now playing for the, um, for the Los Angeles Clippers. If he is not the best player in basketball, he's like number two or three. Okay. He's like very, very good. And, uh, but he's sitting out, he sat out back to back games, including, when he and his team were scheduled to face the Milwaukee Bucks and then Giannis, the Greek freak, who plays for that team. So if you're like, if it's a nationally televised game or you're a fan paying to see it, like, yo, seeing Kawhi versus the Greek freak, that's where the money is, right? And the way they sat him on back-to-back games. Now they say he's got some kind of lingering issue. But the basic belief is that whatever the 
ailment is it's not that serious. He could probably play. He's being paid to play. Why don't you play? And then the counter is because why the fuck would we do that? Um, so the load management is let's rest this guy at periods during the season so that th- they're going to make the playoffs. They can make a better run and he's healthier over the long stretch. And you see these dumbasses come out and say things like, back in my day, the game, we never played that way. Well, the, the game wasn't played that way when you were playing. First of all, the athletes are better. And they play the in the pace and space era. The amount of – I mean, you got you got all these guys, Steph Curry hitting threes from the other side of the court. The amount of space and distance that athletes have to cover now is measurably, measurably much higher. So 30 games now versus 30 games in 1984, they're not the same. It's much more work to do 30 games now. On top of that, you got these giant humans that have to travel 80 games a year. Uh, they're constantly switching time zones. Like it's a it's a complete nightmare. And if you want to argue about the particular nature of how they do the load management, whereas you know should he sit two nights in a row? Should it be one night? How often should it be? I think it's fine to to have a discussion about that. But you know, I cheer for Real Madrid. They sat Ronaldo strategically in his last season and and in the season before that a little bit too. And uh, lo and behold, what did you get? You got back-to-back-to-back championships in in the Champions League. And he actually credited the team, which had some injury problems otherwise, but certainly not with him, with that load management. I don't know that it works for every athlete, but it clearly works for some. Here's the point. That, you know they're doing the same fucking thing with Kawhi Leonard again, where they're like, "Well, that's you know, we played a tougher game in my area era, dude." Have we not learned that the way that people played sports in the '80s is stupid barbarism? That's not good for long-term health, whether it's basketball or whether it's American football. Like this idea, like it was tougher in my day. Yeah, it was fucking dumber too. You guys had worse exercise science. You didn't know about the frailties of the human body. You didn't take concussion. Pro- you didn't even know about concussions. And whatever you did, you didn't take it seriously. And look at the hell that has been wrought, uh, the, 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 the problems that have been caused as a consequence. You mean guys want to do it smarter today and preserve themselves for life after basketball or the postseason? And people have a problem with that? Only a fucking moron would have a problem with that. Only somebody who can think only in the most barbaric terms, or not care that an athlete wants to care about their health, you know, selfishly say that they owe me something. Like, dude, that's bloodthirsty to me. Uh, I'm going to question the integrity of this guy who just won an NBA championship. Get the fuck out of here, man. It's like this craziness you see in sports commentary generally. No, MMA fans might have some of the problem. They are not the only ones. All right, here we go. Uh... I guess it's like a rapid fire. Usman or Covington? Honestly, I was leaning Usman, but I really don't know. I'm, I'm, I really, I don't know. Do you think Nate retires for good? No. Has Romero a chance to win against Adesanya? Sure. And then someone here says nice things. I appreciate that. Is Gamebred the fighter of the year? And if not, who is? For me, he is not. But, let me give a but here. Uh, I would say there's two people who could have a case for it. One would be Jorge Masvidal. The other would be Israel Adesanya. And really, it's going to be a function of what you value the most, which is to say both guys did a lot for their popularity. Both guys did a lot for their pocketbooks. Both guys did a lot for the game. Both guys achieved a lot, forget outside of the cage, especially inside the cage. Those two are your runaway fr- um, one or two choices, depending on you know, one or two, A or B. These are the only ones you can really pick from. I've seen people say like Cejudo, 
The two wins were spectacular, but for me, that's not enough. I saw some people say Mighty Mouse. I don't know why you'd even include him. Um, and there were some other ones too, but but suffice to say, those are your two runaway choices. Okay, Pitbull, Patricio Pitbull is another interesting choice, but still he only fought two times, so it's just not enough for me. Um, I don't think the strength of competition that Masvidal fought is on par with what Adesanya fought. So in that sense, Adesanya has the lead. However, on the other side, when you think about the larger, I mean, you know, there was, Adesanya was riding anticipation from 2018 into 2019. Jorge Masvidal didn't fight at all in 2018, right? He was off. So he had no anticipation. And then he came in there with a, with a great opportunity, made the most of it, and then had the most viral moment of 2019 with the knockout over Ben Askren. I mean, the UFC the UFC is playing that even when they don't even need to play it, just to show it. They're like, oh, here's a press conference between Amanda Nunes and Jermaine Durand and me, and just for shits and giggles, here's Ben Askren getting knocked the fuck out, you know? It's like, why? it's the most viral moment far and away in 2019 in MMA, especially in the UFC. And he had it, and it absolutely catapulted him from from almost, you know, nothing uh, following that Wonderboy loss and then a year off into something. And now he is totally, totally uh, at the peak of his powers and, frankly, his abilities and mindset and everything else. So if you want to say the guy who did more for himself in terms of his popularity, career status, and also did a hell of a lot in the cage, please don't misunderstand me, then the answer is Jorge Masvidal. And there's no real guidelines about what you have to pick. For me, I go strength of schedule as your most important contribution towards figuring out who wins that's that's my personal preference but you can make a case for game bread and I don't think it's that hard you know it would go like that and for sure he had a, he had the biggest uh, viral moment the other part is I had callers call into my show because we talked about this I think yesterday or two days ago and they were saying what about Stipe Miocic he only had one win but it was such a monumental win if you wanted to like think about on an individual night who had the most you know, important performance or most outstanding, he would be in the running. But again, it's hard to overlook the virality of Gamebred's win. Uh, but you, another one, if you if you want to give it to Izzy, you could say who was breakout fighter of the year. Well, then it's Jorge Masvidal, and the answer is nobody else. I mean, to do what he did, coming from nothing, literally, literally nothing, in 2018, no fights, and then to do what he did in 2019, it's just remarkable. It's totally, totally remarkable. So, Adesanya is a great choice. Game bread to me is a, is, a, is a good choice. Just depends on how you want to weigh it out. I don't see anybody else really being close to those two guys. They they did really remarkable stuff in, tw- in 2019, and, I'm, and they, they should both be very proud of themselves. They did good stuff. Several music publications are starting to release their top songs of the decade list, what would be your top five favorite songs from the 2010s? <sighs> Jesus. If you were to create your own list. Man, I'd have to see what albums came out. Um, God, it feels like to me that the music that came out then, not not stuff in the last five years, but like stuff from, let's say, 2013 back, feels so dated to me. feels so dated. God, man, I was listening to the rap. I was listening to who was I listening to the other day? Zarface. I love Zarface. Uh, Esoteric and Inspected Deck. But I just felt like an old man <laughs> listening to it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hating on it. I love it. Like I was listening to uh, I was listening to like hazmat rap. 
which I love that song, but it's like it doesn't sound anything like what the uh, what the old youngins are listening to today. So without having, um, God, I would have to see what's in front of me. I would say, you know, the last the last ten years for me, I've been listening to. I didn't listen to a lot of death metal before. So since then, I've been listening to a lot. For me, my top songs are going to be anything from, you know, you name it, Cannibal Corpse, um, Dying Fetus, uh, Army of the Pharaohs, Jedi Mind Tricks, Esoteric and 7L, Self-Titled, Kendrick Lamar as well. Uh, But my friends have tried to get me into like Schoolboy Q, ASAP Rocky, and it just, I just, uh, I couldn't tell you it's bad. I, I certainly could not tell you it's bad. And even if I did, who would care? But it just doesn't. I, I try to t- I try to tell folks this: if you're 25 years old, you think that your music is like the music, but it's not. It's only the music of the now, and it's the music that will largely stick with you. Some people update their interests as their age grows. Most people don't. I've found, and so when you're my age, 15 years from the point which you're 25, now you're 40. You're going to look back and you're going to say, I'm, you're mostly still going to listen to all that stuff you were listening to at that time. And you're not going to be listening to, predominantly anyway, the stuff that's out today. And you're going to feel old as shit. And you think that your day is the day. But it's only just right now. Uh, and when that passes, you're just, you're like me. You're wearing Sean Price rugby shirts. You know? It's just, that's life, bro. You're going to get aged out fast. Luke, how would you feel about a potential future showdown between Ryan Hall and Brian Ortega? And do you think Ortega would entertain going to the ground at all? Yeah, sure. I think he probably likes his chances there against anybody. Now, that's mostly as a guard player. Um, now, he has to get past the Korean zombie first. So let's see about that. But if he does that, uh, it, it sets up an interesting possibility. The difference is that Ryan Hall is just not gonna, he's not going to go into your guard. You know, he's going to try and invert to take the back to try for a leg entanglement. And then we're going to see how Ortega's jiu-jitsu looks like that. Because his MMA jiu-jitsu from guard or the, when he takes the back, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's great. He's got a great triangle. T-City was where the name comes from. Uh, he's just, he can wrestle well with his legs, you know. But suffice to say, it's not the same kind of tactical or strategic approach that Ryan Hall takes. Uh, I mean, he'll go, if he has to, I suppose he'll go into somebody's guard, but he's looking, it's like Demi and Maya, is like Demi and Maya looking to go into your guard? No, he's looking to pass immediately, or leg weave, or take the back, or, you know, half guard sweep, right? He's got, he's not looking to just find a common position in which a person has strengths and then go into it. Like, dude, if you start in someone's guard, it's a lot of work to pass. Whereas if you try to automatically, upon, let's say, reversal of top to bottom, you're automatically looking for the pass. It's just a lot easier to get, right? So that kind of a thing. And then, again, we talk about it all the time. You want to fight on your terms, not theirs. You want to set the tone. And so if you're the one setting up the leg entanglements, if you're the one uh, attacking to the back, you know, arm dragging to the back or whatever, the person has to answer for that. And even if you're a relatively neutral or I should say um, equal in ability, if you're the one initiating the sequence, you have a much better chance of victory. (sighs) More of these stupid ass questions. Um, 
That's not a stupid question. Whatever. Luke, do you believe Ariel was trying to sabotage the MMA Hour show after he left? Um, PB and J or nah? Yes, of course. Peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly is excellent. But I can't have like the GIF shit. I gotta have the natural peanut butter. It just tastes better. But uh, yes, is the answer. What podcasts or other MMA shows do you watch and rate as watchable and informative? I don't know if I watch any podcasts. Uh, first of all, shouts to all the other Showtime podcasts. Like All the Smoke is great. Um, obviously, Brendan Schaub's. And then he's got a million other podcasts. But I don't really watch podcasts for the most part. I just listen. So I would say, where's my phone? What am I listening to these days? Let's see. You might hear my dog getting fed. So I listen to some local radio. God damn it. Fucking Stitcher ads. Um, so I listen to some local radio. Uh, I listen to, oh, here's a great one. Um, Recode Media. Uh, it's the, um, it's with uh, Peter Kafka. He does, uh, he does a show where he talks to folks in the media. Like, so here's who he's spoken to recently. Yeah, it's called Recode Media with Peter Kafka. It's great. He talked about HBO Max. Um, here's how the Wu-Tang Clan raised Sophia Chang. Uh, can AI teach you to write better? Athletic CEO Alex Mather talking about the future of the athletic. Shea Serrano, who writes for the uh, Ringer. Um, Complex CEO... Yeah, there's a bunch of donks here. In any event, let's see. I listen to uh, The Daily from the New York Times as well as Post Reports, which is a daily podcast of the Washington Post. Ryan Rosilla Show. I, I keep recommending it. The CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, I think it's the, the, it could be company. I'm not sure exactly what the acronym stands for. They did a series called On Drugs. It's no longer active. It's from 2017. It is so fucking good. I cannot recommend it to you more. Um, let's see. Oh, um, Derek Thompson. Crazy Genius Podcast, phenomenal. Let's see, what else do I read? The Total Soccer Show, uh, Move the Sticks, uh, Ezra Klein Show, um, and then listen to one by Sam Wong, the Princeton, uh, who, did, who, who used to write at, or I think still does at Princeton Election Consortium. He does one, I think it's, I what the name is, the Woodrow Wilson Podcast, something like that. I listen to that, so yeah. There you go. Any of those, I recommend. They're good. Uh, let's see. Do you think... Uh, okay, thoughts on Nate Diaz saying he's done with MMA. Well, um, thought about this a lot. First of all, I don't think he's done done. Okay? I think he comes back at some point. Now, when? I don't know. Your guess is going to be as good as mine on this one. Um... I'm a little tired of it, if I can be honest with you. And this comes from somebody who is a longtime Nate Diaz defender. And, and and let me say this up front. Look, man, if fighters are tired and they want to break, you know, only somebody who is a maniac would argue against that. Like, dude, if he wants to go do something else, even just temporarily, I am not in a position to stand in the way. Let him go do it. He is, you know, I mean, these guys who have lived in the trenches forever – like Jorge Masvidal, like Nate Diaz, and they finally get themselves out of it by a variety of different methods. 
then they, you know, they want to, they, they don't want to just do the same old thing they've been doing all the time. They want to either take breaks, have bigger fights, you know, they want to make things strategic. Like you can't be mad at it, man. You just have to accept it. You don't have to love it, but you can't, you can't, you can't like, what do you do? You think criticizing them is going to get them to change their mind? Like they, these are people who are very resolute about their ideas. You know, these are young men in their mid, uh, early to mid thirties. Like they've got their views on the world at this point and you don't have to like it, but you, you you have to accept it. You really, really have to accept it. So with that spirit in mind, how do I feel about it? I think he'll come back. I don't know how long it's going to be. It seems like probably a year, maybe more. I'm guessing. I don't really know. Uh, I'm tired. I'm a little tired of it, to be quite honest with you. To, to as a the fan side of me, if I, if I can say that. Um, you know, look. The, as I mentioned, you got to live your life the best way you feel like you you need to, and it's not even me saying oh, well, he's not maximizing his popularity at the top and he's not maximizing his money at the top and if he's not doing that, with, you know, what is he doing? It's not about like trying to fill some max quota of the amount of money you could get or the amount of headlines you could get if you just stuck around just to get more. Just to get more. Like sometimes, you know, maybe for some people, five million, ten million is enough. Like they don't want any more than that. Like they're good. In which case, God bless them, right? It's rather, it's like, and it's also not even, oh, I don't like MMA, and so therefore we should, re- or this person says, I don't, you know, if a person has negative attitudes towards MMA, we all automatically reject him, and I don't think we should do that either. On the other hand, it's also like, it's exhausting for these guys to just kind of waft everywhere, you know? It's like a bar with no smoking section, like maybe people are smoking, maybe they're not, but there's just this like constant feeling of smoke in the air, and... It's just exhausting to try and cover and then to speculate about and then to get excited for. It's like I don't mind the long hiatuses, but if you're going to go on a long hiatus and when you come back, you should kind of stick around for a little while, I feel like. you know. Um, again, you can't tell anyone else how to live. They're going to live the, the best way that they can. But just as, just as an observer, aren't you guys just like, like again? You know, It's just kind of exhausting to follow the whole thing. And... Um, you know, maybe absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe at some point it makes the, you know, the, the, the routine of the coming and the going, it makes people a little bit fatigued as well. I feel a little fatigued by the whole thing, if I can be candid with you. So it's not about me telling him how to live, but it's also about someone not telling me how I can feel about it. I feel, I feel tired of it, to be, to be honest with you. It's, um, you know, it's nice to have people who, as somebody who's all in on, the, on this sport, it's, you know, it's nice to be people who are not necessarily all in, but just a little bit more consistent with it, you know? Um, it's just a little tiresome. The question is, you know, this anti-hero attitude that he's cultivated, does it grow in his absence or does he get consumed by it? Really, it's kind of the, the chief question that I'm wrestling with. Like, does it burnish his resume by being this, like, sort of ghost that's, specter over everything or is the fact that he's constantly coming and going does that ultimately consume him by not maintaining it right he's not actively butting heads and you know this is a sports world where or this is a sport where you know the the news cycle just turns and turns and turns and does his willingness to butt heads with UFC and then take time away does that does this this is fatigue that I think I'm feeling? And I think some others might as well. Does that last or does that go away? Does it get stronger? You know, 
how many times can you do this? And also, like, you know, he's 34, he's going to be 35 in April. What can you do with that at scale? So, I would, dude, look, he, he deserves a whatever, whatever he's worked for and whatever his options are, he is absolutely, utterly entitled to go and enjoy the fruits of that labor. And I really hope that he does. I hope that he comes back. I, I think MMA is better with Nate Diaz. But this idea of like, I'm just going to go and now we're all forced to sit here and be like with a thumb up our ass. Like, well, when's he coming back? I'm just, <coughs> I'm not really willing to do that. I'm kind of tired of that, to be honest with you. Do you think the likelihood of the first fatality from an MMA bout in a major organization will come by way of blunt force trauma or strangulation? Uh, could come from either, probably blunt force trauma more so, but it will come, as I mentioned earlier, it will come in the form of some kind of bad referee stoppage. That's what I think. What do you think of Colby's EPO accusations against Usman? This is a sport where people say incredibly defamatory things about each other. And uh, no one seems to care. So, I don't know. I don't make my... I don't, guys saying another person's on something, it doesn't mean that they're... It's the same thing. It's like, do I, does it mean that they're wrong? No. I just don't pay a whole lot of mind because it's just impossible to disentangle trash talk that goes uh, unchallenged by typical legal norms and inside knowledge, and it's just hard to unpack everything. I'll say this. The fact that Yusada's that only gotten TJ in four years, like he's the only guy who's used EPO, to me is sort of laughable. But, you know, does that mean that the accusation by Colby is fair? No, it does not. given the information that we have. Hardy versus Volkov, who wins? Should be Volkov, but it's heavyweight, and heavyweights fight like donks. So, should be Volkov. Should be Volkov. But people being like, oh, Hardy stands no chance. Normally, and, and he should not win, but it's heavyweight, y'all. You'd be very foolish to think Hardy can't win that. He shouldn't. Uh, you know, if I had to, I'm not going to bet, but if I had to, I'd bet on Volkov, but... Mm. Will Till continue to run and point fight for the rest of his career? Um, time will tell, but my, but I would give you a reason for optimism. A lot of guys learn offense and then bring in defense later, and that was too costly a weight for Darren Till. So he's got a real defensive approach. At least he had one for the Gastelum fight. But you saw him in that third round begin to open up a little bit more when he wasn't fighting off the takedown, which is to say the following. I think as he gets more comfortable with that style, he'll find more openings to throw, and it will be less of a problem. Right? So so we'll see. That's not a guarantee, but there is a real hope for optimism there. Uh, why does Watterson keep saying she'll be the first mom champ when Cyborg has a daughter and was a champion? Perhaps because Cyborg's daughter is adopted and that doesn't count? I mean, I don't want to speak for Michelle Watterson. I don't know. Maybe she's unaware. I don't know. But yeah, you're right. Cyborg did have a daughter, so it should count. But um, you know, I don't. These are not super consequential things to pour over. What does a win in Russia do for Volkov? I only see an upside for this fight for Hardy. Well, it was supposed to be against JDS, so the answer is at least he gets to compete. Uh, if the Hardy critics are right, this will be an easy victory for him. In which case, bravo. And um, 
yeah, paycheck, chance to call out somebody else, move up in the pecking order. Heavyweight's a little bit in, not limbo, but a little bit in uncertain territory right now. You got, you know, Rosenstruck fighting Overeem. That could be interesting. He might get the winner of that. You know, you could do some interesting things potentially if uh, Rosenstruck wins. So it's just a chance to stay active, stay visible, get a paycheck, get a win. It's not like it boosts you in the same way that beating JDS might have. What do you think about the thought process behind giving Greg Hardy a shot at Volkov? Hardy's last few opponents have been shitty athletes, subpar fighters, and seem to be brought in as a stepping stone for Hardy to build his skills and experience, which, by the way, is exactly how it should have gone. Now Hardy is going against a man who has finished Verdum, pieced up Lewis for nearly the entire fight, and beaten veterans like Struve and Nelson. Does the UFC know that win or lose, Hardy will be a draw? Or do you think that they have seen his ratings and notice that he isn't worth the cash they are giving him for a slow rise? I think, if anything, they love Greg Hardy. I think ESPN loves Greg Hardy. Um, you don't see a lot of ESPN criticism of Greg Hardy anymore, right? That one bullshit piece from Jeremy Schapp, they stopped that. He's constantly fighting on their platform. Now, this obviously is a bit of a different scenario, but I think they love him, actually. And I think that... Uh, uh, you know, fast tracking, I don't know. This to me just looks commonly like, hey, here's a guy who's available. We have a need to fill. That's a lot of how UFC matchmaking goes. I don't see a sinister, I don't see anything sinister in that. But, you know, would they be just beside themselves if Hardy won and got a, uh, an opportunity to fight a big name fighter on a big card or on ESPN again? Fuck no. Absolutely not. I don't buy any of that stuff. I think if the evidence shows quite clearly that the power brokers in play, including and not limited to ESPN as a network, and of the entities involved in the MMA side of things, they love Greg Hardy. They absolutely love Greg Hardy, and I think they're going to go out of their way to make sure that his story can be one of success if he can do just enough to, on his side of things, earn his way there. Um, this is a bit of a sink or swim moment. I don't know that he's ready for it. We'll find out tomorrow about this time, but... Um, but yeah, I think they love him. I think the huge mistake is to think they're like bringing him in to lose or they don't want him to be anything or some shit like that. No, they are in the Greg Hardy business and it ain't an accident. You should accept that for better, or for worse. Maybe you like that. Maybe you hate that, but that seems to me quite obvious at this point. Um, about his development, he's kind of done the things where he had the illegal shot on Alan Crowder and then bizarrely have the inhaler in his last fight where it's made it's made evaluating his progress kind of hard because like on certain things his footwork has gotten a lot better and his his knowing when to press the gas pedal when to press the press the brake has gotten better but then he does goofy shit like that and you're like why are you okay the best case scenario is you're clueless the a fair interpretation would be you're just outright cheating uh, and that you know this whole thing has been kind of calamitous from the word go. This will be a big, a bit of a big test for us to see what he does here. If he does another thing that's like outside the rules, then you can probably get a pretty keen sense that this dude has some issues. Um, he might knock him out quickly, in which case, no big deal. He might get knocked out quickly, in which case, no big deal. But like the idea that like people are like oh he gave, they gave him all these bums that's unusual. No, it's not unusual. That's exactly how it should have gone. Your first five, unless you're some kind of like incredible prospect, and maybe he is, maybe he's not, but like in general, 
dude, your first five fights should be against dudes you can just demolish. Right around four or five, you can turn up the dial a little bit. But a proper matchmaking is giving guys people they should beat as they get better over time. And then when you get to like the seven to ten fight territory, and this all varies athlete to athlete, but, you know, the first five guys he fought, were they not that great? Okay, who cares? And I'm not doing a thing, I'm not trying to argue in service of Greg Hardy. You know, I think he should have a license to fight. I don't know if the UFC should have signed him, right? If you can't fight in the cage in this country, I really don't know what you can do. So he should have a license by the commission. On the other hand, should he be in the UFC? Seems to me it's a little bit of a bad, it's actually quite a bad look, but they're willing to just, you know, not apologize for it and move on. So you have to kind of live with it. With that being what it is, how good is he? How should he be treated? Dude, they did it. They did it right. Now again, he's done things along the way. You'd be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" But um, I don't mind the way he's had his he's had fighters fed to him. Clearly, that's not the case anymore with Volkov. So we'll see how this goes. But up to this point, I don't really have an issue with it. Let's see. Look, the BMF title seemed to be a great success. What else? could the UFC do to headline pay-per-view cards without title fights besides putting on great fights? Uh, really, that's the most important consideration. I just think, you know, clever ways to promote a fight. This was a little bit over the top, not in a bad way, but we know with the title and the rock and everything, they did a great job. You know, the UFC did what they were supposed to. In general, I, I think if you just make the fights that people really enjoy and you try to make more creative ways at showcasing them, I honestly feel like most of these concerns go away. Part of what was driving BMF was, one, people wanted to see two guys who had this incredible style of fighting and reputation outside of direct title concerns kind of clash into each other. And the other part was people were just bored with the same way fights are promoted over and over and over and over again. They wanted something different. And the UFC, to their credit, they did a great job. They did a great job. Like, I thought the BMF belt was kind of, you know, they took the same casting for a normal belt. (laughs) And then just made it silver and then put a couple different... I mean, they didn't do much, if you ask me. People like were raving about it. I was like, it's like super derivative. But okay, whatever. At least they made one. At least they had The Rock out there. At least they had Duran walk out Masvidal. And they had Nate walked out by Nick. And they had, you know, it was a big thing. I give them all the credit in the world for it. I thought they did a great job with it. That's a little over the top. They don't have to do it all the time. But, you know, just make for it. And then try some different stuff. With uh, marketing materials, try some different stuff with promotion. I think what people feel is the fatigue, the robotic and and formulaic factory assembly nature of it, the banquet food that it has become at times. But you know, do they have to go out and like constantly reinvent the wheel every time? No. Make the fights that people want to say the the people want to pay money to see. Try to be as creative as possible with the bigger ones that where you can with the space that you can. And I think most people will be quite satisfied. Frankly, I have to tell you. After all that BMF stuff, which, again, UFC did a, did a great, great job with it, I'm a little fatigued with it. I'm happy to see a UFC Moscow where there's no, you know, what is the uh, HMF title on the line and the uh, hugest motherfucker and uh, what about the TMF, tallest motherfucker? I mean, let's just have great fights, and most of the sport will take care of itself. Luke, who has a worse stick between Cejudo and Covington? I'd say Cejudo. And do you actively root against fighters who employ such inauthentic strategies for attention? No, I don't. Best man wins. I'll take pleasure in fighters who sometimes big-time me when they didn't used to. <laughs> and there's a couple that have lost this year that have done that, where they would constantly answer my texts, and all of a sudden they get a little bit ahead of steam. 
and then they stop, and then a lot of actually virtually all of them have lost, which I have enjoyed to a minor degree. But in general, no, man, uh, no. Like the reality is, dude, the sport is hard enough for these guys without jackasses like you or me getting out there and like fuck that guy, you know. Um, it'd be as a fan, you're allowed to like whatever you like, of course. But in general, honestly, ninety nine percent of the time, I just. Uh, I just, hey man, best man wins. Like, I, do I like Greg Hardy? I don't, I, I, I don't. But if he wins, he wins, man. And you just have to accept it, you know. Um, Colby, Colby's a guy that said a lot of really fucked up things, to be honest with you. But if he wins, he wins, dude. And you just need to accept it. Uh, it's the way it goes. It's the way it goes. I did think his thing where he had the triggered book up <laughs> made me laugh a little bit, if I could be honest with you. I can't say that it didn't. And I, you know, I'm not a MAGA dude. Y'all know. I thought that was, I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny. All right, I want to make sure I don't botch this for the people in the super chat. So, all right, golly, I don't want to fuck this up for y'all. Let me get to this real quickly if I can. Is it safe to say that last Friday's live show at Legends was a success? That was the best one we've ever done. That was almost as good as going to the fights. Any plans to do something similar next month in D.C.? I might have to leave on Saturday to go do something for Showtime because they're having fights in New York that night, I think. Um, but that Friday night, yeah, December 6th, I don't have anything official to announce, but mark your calendars. We'll do something. At a bare minimum, we'll do either a podcast taping that night or a tweet up or something. So if you're in the D.C. area, either you live here or you're going to come here for the uh, the ESPN on UFC, was it 6 or 7, whatever, which one it is? Um, December 6th is the Friday, December 7th is the uh, Saturday, but December 6th, save me a little room. Uh, here we go. And by the way, yes, we've done a bunch of those. We might do one for 245 in Vegas after the weigh-ins there, so we'll see how, I mean, that's not confirmed by any stretch of the imagination, so we'll see. But yes, December 6th, save me some, save, save me your evening that, that night. I'm going to do something that night. Um... 15 random Visigoths versus 15 random donks in a street fight. Oh, the Visigoths win that one. Robert Whitaker wants Till in London. Fuck yes. I am all in favor of that fight. Love that fight. Love everything about that fight. That's a tough fight for both guys. Love it. Do you think there is a fight style yet to be discovered that will become dominant in MMA or have all the effective styles already been discovered? No, there's always adaptations. There's always new discoveries. There's always adaptations that are going to keep happening. Again, the one that's beginning to take over is the half position. Half guard, one hook in, 50-50 in the clinch, which is ostensibly neutral but done under somebody who's trying to do that, where you don't really commit to a full position, but you kind of dictate halfway there, and then you just control somebody where you can defensively bail easily, but you're winning rounds, You're someone's reacting to what you're doing, and... Uh, yeah, that is the that is the future. Leon Edwards does a lot of that. Colby Covington does a lot of that. That's very much the future. Will Dagestanis fight each other as they climb the ranks? Yes. What do you think about Bigfoot Silva's BKFC debut? I don't know how commissions are still licensing him to fight. Remember, the whole point about the new bare knuckles that it's commission approved. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Any change in style for Kevin Lee in the last fight? Sticking to the stance he was in, sticking to a game plan. You know, you know that that combo he hit, that was something that they had looked at the whole time. Um, 
we'll see. We need to see. I mean, that was such a short fight. We, until we got to see a lot more from Kevin, we didn't get to see a whole lot. That said, with Faraz Ahabi, they're going to add skills that to him. They're, they're going to add talents. But it seems to me what they're really going to do is like sharpen up everything. With Masvidal blowing up, is there a better time for the 165-pound division? Nope. It's a great time. They just don't want to do it. Korean Zombie has never been submitted and is rarely seen on his back. Is this because people placate to his forward style? Or is his takedown clinch defense that good? Both. How did Jorge Masvidal beat out Israel Adesanya for fire of the year? Are we ranking promotion over actual fights now? There's no criteria for it. and But first of all, it wasn't like he did some bullshit in the, uh, in the cage this year. He did a lot of great things. Uh, I admit, not on par with what Adesanya did, but at the same time, like he had, you know, those are great victories that he had. Um, but to go, as I mentioned, like Adesanya had fought what four times in 2018. You know, he was kind of expected to keep escalating. Masvidal came out of nowhere, you know, and then just bum rushed the scene. So what he did in the cage, I think, is not as impressive. While impressive, is not as impressive as what Adesanya did. But to elevate oneself out of the trenches at 155 and 170, he had been grueling in for 16 years. It's it's not a small thing, man. It's very, very difficult to do. If Israel beats a wrestler like Yoel, does anyone at 170 have an answer for him? At 170? I mean, maybe if Kamaru moved up or something? Um, Because Yoel is good at the takedown. He is not good at control. Right, he's got he's got very freestyle wrestling centric style. He doesn't have that folk style ride that a Colby does or that a Kamaru does. So that's a bit of an interesting twist if they eventually go if, if or maybe if uh, even um, Colby goes up. What the fuck happened to Zufa Boxing? Remember they're supposed to have a big presser and announcement in uh, October and they didn't. Now if you listen to Mike Coppinger from the Athletic, they did make hires internally, and I guess they're waiting to make announcements or maybe additional hires before they make announcements, but. His reporting seems to indicate that the ball is rolling. Like, they've initiated the process of getting it going. It's just, according to the timelines they had set out, they appear to be very far behind. Someone says, been a fan for a decade now. Luke, I think it's the first time I've heard you drop a massive amount of F-bombs, and I'm loving it. Yeah, sorry, I'm in a mood. Thanks for the uh, awesome decade of work. Well, thank you for uh, sticking around here this awesome decade. Let me squeeze in a couple of more of these if I can. Uh, Here we go. Someone says, I'm watching from jail because I gave a snitch a stitch. Well, then why are you giving me $2? You better hold on to that for some top ramen player. Most high-end cell phones are water-resistant. Why do you think there aren't a ton of water-resistant laptops? In large part because there's not much of a need. Uh, I mean, there's some of a need, but, you know, is is your laptop as mobile as your phone? Quite literally not. Um... I mean, you can't put it in your pocket unless you got those like old jeans from the 90s. What's it called? Like the Jenko jeans, whatever they were called. In any event, uh, I'm not entirely certain, but part of it. Oh, here's a good one. What are your thoughts about Jeff Nowitzki's 20-minute interview pushing back at the critics about the UFC's anti-doping policy? And it seemed like he was directly responding to your specific criticisms of the UFC's handling of the Nate Diaz situation and the anti-doping policy in general. Well, I have no idea if he was... Uh, affirmatively and specifically responding to what I had to say. Here is this funny thing, man. Somebody said this to me the other day, 
And I actually took issue with it because I know you're going to laugh when I say I took issue with it, but hear me out for just a second if you can. Someone was like, and they were saying it as a compliment, but they were saying like, oh, you know, you got a real contrarian vibe and, you know, um, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And I'm like, I, I really kind of, I, 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 I appreciated what they were trying to say, which is, you know, there's a need for it or something. But the reality is, man, like there's only a need for it because there's this, this widespread gullibility in MMA among media or a lack of curiosity Maybe I don't know exactly what the way to put it, where it's like I just can't believe some of these questions. I'm the only one, or one of the only ones, this ever seems to occur to. Like one was like, "Oh, we've solved weight cutting." People were like, "Yep, they solved weight cutting." And I'm like, "Where's the evidence?" Oh, right, we don't have any. I'm like, "Well, how how do you know it's?" I'm not saying it's true or not true. I'm not I'm not accusing them of lying. To to say that they're lying, I would have to affirmatively know that, right? I don't know that, but I know you haven't proven anything. And then they started showing some of their weigh-ins. Folks were like, "Okay, case closed." Dude, they don't show shit on those weigh-ins. Those live streams are virtually worthless. You have no idea what's happening there. You have no idea about all the other pre-screenings that have happened during the course of the week. This is, I'm not saying it's worthless, but it's pretty close to worthless. And folks are just ready to declare victory. Oh, we're paying 88 figures. Prove it. Oh, uh, Bellator saying, you know, Cyborg's got the largest woman's contract in, UF, in the MMA history. Prove it. Prove it. Like, there's just this weird, in MMA media, like, one of my biggest pet peeves, and these are nice people, man. They're doing a lot of, in a lot of other spaces, phenomenal work. But when it comes to being, when it comes to scrutinizing institutional powers, they don't do it. They just accept what they've been told. You mean to tell me, you know that any institution run by humans is, on some level, going to be uh, imperfect, going to be potentially fraught with peril, uh, potentially going to be really worthy of um, further scrutiny. Any any institution, even those that really uh, try to run themselves the best, um, local court systems, uh, uh, military platoons, whatever. You mean to tell me these are perfect? Far, far from it. Dude, aside from me asking about the anti-doping protocol, among people who've got a bit of a higher profile among MMA media, who else does it? Chad Dundas wrote an article, which I really appreciate, for The Athletic. Show me what else. Everything is fucking deferential to them. It is by, by posture deferential. It is as if these guys come down and they're priests trying to explain scripture to the MMA media, and they're like, oh yeah, that must be what the interpretation is. There's like virtually no, there's just no curiosity, there's no scrutiny ab about institutional power. It's just utterly deferential. And then he comes out and he says a bunch of different things, including but not limited to, yeah, you know, we were because remember he does not work for USADA. He works on the UFC side of things. You know, we were we were releasing the names of these guys, and then it would come out later that they were innocent, that there was a contaminated supplement, and it would do real damage. As if this fucking dawned on them after the fact, dude. When they announced the policy, people like me were criticizing it right away, right away. These were knowable, fixable problems. Before the problems even started. Like this revelation, oh my God, we just <laughs> we just figured this out. This you didn't need to wait, man. You didn't need to wait through any of the people who had all those problems. This was a very, very fixable problem. There's another scenario. Let me pull up my notes on this because we, we heard some of the audio for this um, on my radio show yesterday. We played some of it. I didn't, not all of it, but but a but a but a big portion of it. Um 
where was it? Let me pull up the uh, the notes from yesterday. Here's the cut sheet. Here we go. Da 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 da. Public. There was one. There was one piece of audio where he says, you know, um, and try to get this right. We talked to other leagues. You know, we talked to other anti-doping authorities. We talked to other scientists. Blah 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 blah. And in the course of like trying to explain how they're trying to get the policy right, you notice one name they never say. They never say we talk to the fighters, talk to scientists, talk to lawyers, talk to other sports leagues, talk to never talk to the fighters. Wow, I am so shocked that uh, an anti-doping program absolutely filled to the brim with no protections for athletes um, doesn't have as a matter of course any mechanism forcing them to take into consideration their needs until blowback happens after the fact. This is the only question you have to ask them, anybody, going forward. This is the only one. Do athletes have a right Yes or no, to to uh, do they have a right to? Let me make sure I word this very carefully. Do individual athletes have a right to define their future, have a say over? How about that? Do they have a right to have a say over uh, a right anti-doping protocol in their professional athletic careers? Yes or no. Because the answer in terms of their practices to date has been no. What they will commonly say is, well, we speak on behalf of the athlete. No, the fuck you do not. No, you do not. Not USADA, not the UFC. However benevolent you think you are, you do not. You do not represent their interests, matter of factly. Okay? Uh, a, a lawyer would represent their interests. An agent, a manager, something like that. Or they themselves. Right? You do not represent their interests. However benevolent you think you are, you do not. Uh, and if the answer is no, I want to hear them say it out loud. Say it out, say, say it out loud for those in the back. The athlete does not have a right to have a say over the, over the anti-doping practices of their professional athletic career. Say it. I want, I want to hear it. Because once that is laid bare for everybody, you begin to see what this is functionally about. This is functionally about the UFC entering a business arrangement with USADA to protect their interests as an institution. That is what this is about. Y'all can tell yourselves that this is about stamping out doping. They caught one guy using EPO in four years. You can tell yourselves that they care about the fighters. Go ask Augusto Mendez how that worked out for him. Go ask Tom Lawler how that worked out for him. It's not a question about whether or not there should be anti-doping. The question is about what kind and what protections athletes are entitled to. And the ones that USADA and UFC have finally begun to get around to, dude, these were very predictable, solvable problems. They do not get a pat on the back for any of it, for any of it. Not one tiny bit do they deserve praise, and don't anyone in the media even try. If you want to acknowledge this is a better situation than it has been, I will agree with that. That is true. It, they are at least making progress in the right direction. But at its core, this is not an arrangement designed to protect the rights and interests of athletes. At its core, this is an arrangement designed for the UFC to protect its institutional interests in the event of anti-doping hysteria. That's what this is, folks. I hate to break it to you. It is no more. It is no less. It is possible in that arrangement, in individual circumstances, they catch someone breaking the rules who could have got a benefit conferred upon them as a consequence. 
It is also quite possible, and we have seen demonstrable evidence of this, that because there are no protections, real protections, uh, written into the... Uh, there's no real spirit of it, certainly. There are now some protections, I suppose. But there's no real seat at the table for the athletes. So this ongoing imbalance where their rights are not protected has created problems, and it will continue to create problems. To wit, we only found out about any changes to the policy because they're not transparent after the fact. They're just unilaterally changing what the, what the policies are without consideration um, for what they owe to the public until after the fact. I mean, and you guys want me, like, this was all super predictable. Super duper predictable. And there's been not many voices out there consistently saying, dude, where are the protections for the athletes? And there's just this, yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm the malcontent. I guess I'm the guy who uh, is the old contrarian. How is it I'm the only one with these questions occur to? Part of it is, you know, you see people who, who have like strong opinions about anti-doping and they've read zero scholarship. Fighters ask me all the time for me to send them stuff, and I do, and I never hear it hardly back from it. Long, lengthy papers, studies that have been done overseas, books that have been written by experts in this field. They just think, oh, because I'm living in it, I get this sort of osmosis wisdom conferred upon me. And certainly living through those kinds of systems and having to compete in it with skin in the game is a perspective absolutely you should take seriously. It does not confer upon you some kind of erudition and understanding what the global situation is. Which, by the way, I don't know if you guys have been following the news, the Rodchenkov Act is moving swiftly through Congress. It is so draconian, it is so draconian, because what they want to do is they want to put people in jail, that even WADA is lobbying against it. <laughs> even WADA is like, holy shit, this is, this is terrible. Uh, and WADA is lobbying against uh, the, the Gregory Rodchenkov Act in Congress, up to the tune of a quarter million dollars, if not more. Can you believe that? Because that is what they want. They know one gear, fastball, hardball, all the time. They believe so strongly in the sanctity of their mission that they speak on behalf of athletes, that if athletes get hurt, they don't ever have to apologize, that, that, that uh, there's no discussion to be had about what benefits are conferred outside of drugs versus with drugs and how that line gets real blurry in certain situations about whether athletes have a right to have a say over their future, the ones with the most skin in the game. They believe so strongly, religiously, in their mission that these concerns and these questions, it is the buzzing of flies to them. What they really want, what they really and truly want, I'm not speaking for Jeff Nowitzki, but anti-doping authorities in general, what they want is they want the power of law enforcement and they want to criminalize doping and they want to put people in jail. And the reason why they want to do that is because the war on doping, no one wants to tell you this, but it is a fact, is part of the war on drugs. It is an extension of it. That is just the reality. And, in, and here's what's going to happen. They're probably going to succeed. And you probably are going to begin to see people shoved into prisons because guys are prisons in the United States they're just not crowded enough. We just haven't found enough areas of human life to criminalize. So why don't we add that to the list? And it is only and until it dawns on people that we are beginning to push into such levels of extreme behavior 
to police something, which, by the way, whose benefits we're not entirely sure what they are. In certain sports we know, in many sports we don't. MMA is not safer by USADA's introduction, not even a little bit. There's no evidence in aggregate we get fewer injuries, less brain trauma, anything. Zero evidence to that effect. They're mostly catching supplement users who have no rights and protections. And I'm the and I'm basically the only one being like, anyone else think this is like super fucked up? Anyone think that there might be a better way to do this? Anyone think there might be a better way to harmonize and balance the needs for anti-doping with the athletes' lives and their needs and their reputations and their very, very short athletic careers? Anyone think there might be a better marriage between the two? So I guess I'm the contrarian. I guess I'm the contrarian. But I think that two entities making decisions on behalf of fighters behind closed doors, uh, I think it's fucked up. I think them making those decisions four years too late is fucked up. I think that the careers that have been damaged or ruined or ended by them unfairly, I think they should apologize in public to them. I think they should acknowledge that their practices that got them there uh, demonstrate a total lack of scientific humility and epistemic humility. And I think that if you really believe and care about fighters, you have to say they have a right to have a say over this process. Either they do or they don't. And if they don't, say it out loud. Say it out loud for everyone in the back. Fighters don't have a right to have a say. Say it. Say it out loud. Make it clear what you really believe at the end of the day. Say it. I want to hear it. Because if the answer is they do, well then put them at the fucking table. Period. End of story. Simple as that. Uh, all right. And last, you had Nowitzki admitting that, you know, um, strict liability doesn't even work anymore. Like, I, I've been, I've been telling, I've been telling everybody this for a very long time. I've been saying this for a very long time. Okay. Just want to point that out there. Okay. All right. Um, lastly, let me wrap up on the, let me wrap up on the questions here. Am I the only one who wants to see Tony versus Jorge? No, a lot of people want to see that. Light a hooker's wig on fire, bro. <laughs> Don't know what that means, but okay. KSI Logan Paul predictions. Who could make a prediction about that contest? What are some of your favorite metal bands? Uh, I've listened to Slaughtered to Prevail. They are extremely heavy. Um, favorite uh you know what's one i've been listening to a lot recently there i don't even think they're still working around but um annotations of an autopsy is great um rivers of nile um nile uh obviously uh, you know um cannibal corpse is up there dying fetus is up there Who's another one? Like old opeth i like I, i'm or not one say i like i'm getting into new new opeth is just disastrous but uh um yeah there's about there's some good ones how about that there's a lot of metal that's just terrible but you know but you're asking who my favorite all time is it's pantera it's pantera 
So there you go. All right, we got to go. I got I got phone calls I got to make. I got to do a show prep. I got stuff I got to do. Like the video. Subscribe to the channel. Tell folks about it. Would love it if you do that. Appreciate everyone who tuned in today. And until next time, stay frosty.